And that's what, in my private practice, the executives that were coming to see me and the reason I was able to grow that practice is because they were all trying to figure out how to relax. They had no idea. There were no tools out there. This is the Rebel HR Podcast, the podcast where we talk to HR innovators about all things people leadership. If you're looking for places to find about new ways to think about the world of work, this is the podcast for you. Please subscribe from your favorite podcast listening platform today and leave us a review. Rebel on, HR Rebels. Welcome back, Rebel HR listeners. Extremely excited with us today. We have Jennifer Sierra Bully. She is the founder of Studio B as well as CEO. She began her career in the telecommunications industry after a decade of success. She suffered from burnout and uh, transformed her life. So really excited to talk about uh, Jennifer and her journey, as well as how we can think about some of her work as it relates to human resources and the workforce. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi. Uh, hi, Kyle. It's so nice to be here with you. Um, how are you? Doing really well. Uh, really excited to to finally have the chance to talk with you. We've, we've had to reschedule uh, this this a couple times, but I really appreciate your flexibility and and spending some time. I think this topic is going to be really powerful uh, for for our listeners. So I want to start off just by understanding a little bit more about uh, about your background and what prompted you to found Studio B. Um, I get off I, I get asked that question often, and I apologize. I've been in meetings like six, you know, Zoom meetings back to back before our call today. So I might feel a little frazzled <laughs> no, for a second. No judgment. We've got plenty of grace here. We, every <laughs> single one of these listeners can relate to what you just said. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm sure they can. And it's too much, by the way. So, um, and I know better, but uh, I digress. Um, so, uh, you know, I started thinking about this work, um, after really having some personal experiences, um, you know, you mentioned that, uh, I, I experienced burnout and, you know, at the time, like the, the word burnout was in our vocabulary. This is back in 2005, 2007, you know, in that period of time, like I knew what I was experiencing, um, was burnout, but we didn't, we didn't really have a definition for it. Um, at, at least not a clinical definition, right? That didn't come out until many, many years later. And, um, and so, but what I experienced personally is, you know, I, I was in a job that I once really enjoyed. I, I was working, uh, in the telecom industry. I had worked my way up from general business sales, like slinging long distance services to, um, selling wide area network infrastructure, um, hardware and software to, you know, national and international, um, companies, um, and, and landed in, in the national account space. So I, I had kind of, you know, reached, um, I had reached all my goals in my, in that job. And I had learned a lot. I learned how to manage and be with, um, you know, manage my own team and articulate, you know, our needs throughout the organization, kind of navigating that corporate infrastructure. Um, I really understood, you know, how to navigate my way around um, client accounts and, and, you know, communicate and engage with uh, decision makers and, and move contracts through 
you know, the funnel and then also, you know, in, in, in go through the implementation process and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, I was, I was in a space where I was still young, still learning, uh, still really engaged. And yet, you know, I, I, I was burning the candle at both ends. Um, I had three kids at the time, uh, you know, I, four, I have four in total now. Um, but at the time my kids were young, we were a young family. I was traveling all the time. Um, I just didn't have, um, the boundaries. I, I, I didn't know how to set those good, healthy boundaries and really, uh, manage my personal life and my work life in a way that was healthy. Right. And, and that you could only mm -hmm. do that so long. Right. So, um, so yeah. of course, um, you know, I, you know, I hit a wall, uh, my relationship, uh, my marriage specifically was kind of falling apart. Um, I, I was, you know, worried about my kids. I was, you know, jumping on funnel calls every day with, with my teams and, you know, it, I, I was just sick. I, I lost probably 25 pounds. You know, I, I wasn't taking care of myself, my mental health, you know, I was starting to have anxiety, um, overwhelm, my relationships are falling apart, the whole thing. Right. So, I mean, that experience and, and you get to a point where you just can't do it anymore. Right. So, and, and the first thing to go is, is your engagement or for me, at least I can only speak from my personal experience. You know, the first thing to really crash and burn was, was my, my work. I just hate, ended up hating my job, hating the people I worked with. You know, it certainly wasn't their fault, but I was showing up differently. Um, and I just couldn't, I just had no, I, I had no sense of um, knowing how to support myself. I had no tools to enter resource. Um, and, and I just let it all fall down. And, and I think that's what happens to people. Like they turn around and they're like, what just happened? Um, so I left my job. Um, I really needed to. Uh, I needed to get some support. I needed to work through, you know, a divorce, um, work through kind of figuring out how, what direction my life was going to go in. So I don't think it typically that gets that terrible for people, I hope. I mean, I, I do know that it, 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 I know a lot of people that it have similar stories, but uh, for me, it got pretty bad. Um, and I did leave the job and I did kind of find, like crawl out of that hole. Um, but it took a couple of years and it took a lot of intervention. It took a, uh, leaning into a lot of resources externally um, so that I could build those internal resources and, and kind of, you know, get healthy. Um, and, it, and I did that. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't go back. Um, I didn't go back into uh, business marketing, you know, where I was educated. Um, I actually became a yoga teacher. <laughs> I, I started that uh, process in 2007 um, with my first 200-hour teacher training program. And I did that not only to, because I at the time, I don't think I my intention was to teach full-time. I think my intention was to uh, support inner growth. And, and, you know, I had been doing yoga for about 10 years at the time. And I think it was probably the only thing that kept me off of medication when I hit like that really bad space. Um, and I'm not 
I'm not advocating for not medicating, just so everybody's clear. I'm absolutely an advocate for um, all of the resources that you need to stay and get healthy. Um, but for me, uh, you know, I'm a pretty physical person. I like to run, hike, you know, I love to, you know, I was a dancer as a kid. Um, and, and so yoga for me was something that I could, uh, be in my body. I could just be in the breath. I could just land on my mat and, and maintain. Um, and, and at the time I just, I just felt that I was being called, uh, to just deepen my experience. And, and that was the only intention. Um, and that led me down a road of really, uh, you know, I, I'm one of those kind of people that when I'm in, I'm all in. Right. So I want to know everything. I get really nerdy with like the science and the history and the philosophy and the details. And, you know, I, I love to learn. I, I think I'm a lifelong learner. I, I hope that never changes. Um, so I really did. I, I ended up having over 2000 hours of training, um, in yoga and mindfulness. I went through a two, two year training in mindfulness, uh, practices specifically. I've studied Buddhism, uh, extensively. I did a year in London, uh, studying with my primary teachers there. Um, I owned a yoga studio, uh, for six and a half years, um, I taught yoga and mindfulness practices full time for 12 years. Um, and, you know, I got to a point where uh, I was really, really healthy and, and steady and, and well for, a, you know, and I, I still am. <laughs> That's the good news. <laughs> but um, but at that point, like when I got through like that crisis period and like stabilized and, and really started um, supporting other people. And seeing, especially, you know, with my, with my private practice, you know, I, I worked mainly with executives because they related, you know, to me, they related to the experiences that I was coming into the practice with being in the corporate world, you know, struggling with, with burnout, overwhelm, anxiety, stress. Um, and so I worked primarily with men, many executives, lawyers, um, doctors, um, also women too, but I was just getting all these like men who, you know, were in these really powerful positions and, and then they'd go and, you know, run a triathlon or, or participate in triathlon or run a half marathon on the weekends. And, you know, that's such a classic type A response. Like, <laughs> I'm stressed out. So I'm going to go stress my body out more. Yeah. And, you know, and it's so fun. I'm laughing. Yeah. yeah. I'm laughing because I just did a half Iron Man last year. So yeah, I can yeah. I, I I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, what they were coming to see me, because it really my yoga practice, um, and and you know, my when my when I started my yoga practice and I was, you know, in the workplace, uh, in corporate sales, I did Ashtanga yoga, which is a really intense disciplined, you know muscle, you know, strength-based young practice. But when I, when I went through that whole period and I was really figuring out how to heal my nervous system, because that's really what it was about, is how do I stabilize and heal my nervous system in this body? Um, that's when I really leaned into restorative practices, yin yoga, um, and mindfulness and, and pranayama practices, breathing practices. 
Um, and that's what, in my private practice, the executives that were coming to see me and the reason I was able to grow that practice is because they were all trying to figure out how to relax, right? They had no idea. There were no tools out there, right? And, you know, it's funny because doctors or, physic- you know, PAs, nurses, whatever, um, they often will recommend yoga as a way to, you know, cope with stress and, and you know, help people with anxiety and overwhelm, depression, whatever. And it's it's always a, a wonderful thing, but they should be really specific and, hey, seek out somebody that can teach you restorative practices in perhaps the yoga modality, right? Somatic practices. It, find a teacher who is skilled to teach you method and um, technique to calm your system, right? Because because there's tons of, you know, and, and this is a big problem in, in the yoga world is that these 200-hour programs, you know, they're just not well monitored. Um, you, you kind of don't know what you're going to get, you know. So people don't know that when they go out to, you know, drop into a yoga class, hey, they may, they may be dropping into a class that's super intense, that's going to max out your nervous system with loud music and hot, you know, heat and all and and all of those <laughs> fun right those things are fun i mean i'm not saying that i don't enjoy them but if you're already kind of burning the candle at both ends you know have this young disposition this type a personality really what you don't need is more physical young practices right you need to learn how to be in the body in stillness with care and compassion, right? And it, it, be an inner friend to yourself. And um, and the reason why I'm bringing all this in is because as I went further and further and further down um, my career in in the well being realm, uh, you know, running and, and and owning a studio and and teaching full time and working with these people and and kind of noticing who was showing up, uh, you know. I kind of naturally started thinking about, okay, I had this experience. I understand where these people are coming from and I know how to help them. So how do I bring this together? Um, And then, you know, I mentioned I was, I was doing study in London in 2017, 2018. um, And I was with a group of, of 25 women uh, from around the world who were also studying um, Buddhism and mindfulness practices, specifically uh, from uh, you know Theravadan um, kind of uh, teachings, Vipassana teachings, so on and so forth. And these women were expert teachers. They were lifelong practitioners. They had you know a consistent, dedicated practice for decades. Um, And I would say 80% of the women in that circle of women had also experienced the exact same thing that I experienced. They were in corporate, you know, in the corporate world. Some of them were lawyers or physicians or professors or, you know, but they they had a career prior to this where they, they, they burned out, they left their career, um, it was too much. 
you know, and then they committed their lives to these practices and being a teacher, being a healer in the world. And what I found most fascinating is that they were also the teachers that were really struggling to kind of build a sustainable income as a teacher, <laughs> right? They didn't have, they didn't really yeah. have business skills to kind of promote themselves and so on and so forth. And that's really when, during that period of time, when the entire business plan, like the original business plan of Studio B kind of fell in my lap. I was like, oh, wait a second. There's a dramatic need to bring highly skilled expert resources. And, and in this you know, specific case, I'm talking about mindfulness and yoga teachers. Um, and we've expanded there, obviously. Um, but expert resources to people as interventions in the workplace because people need it. And remember, this is pre-pandemic, so 2017. So the problem was always, the problem has been around for a long time. The pandemic just blew it up, right? <laughs> I mean, it just escalated. Yeah. It, it brought the light of awareness to like, hey, pay attention here because people are crashing. We have, we are in a, a crisis, uh, you know, a, a, a massive global crisis right now. And if you peel up the layers here, a lot of these problems have been here for a long time. Of course, not the pandemic, not the virus, but mental health has been a crisis not only in the United States, but, but throughout the world for decades, right? And nobody's been attending to it. Um, so it, it, it's been very, very interesting. You know, we launched Studio B. I launched Studio B in January of 2019. Um, and I was so, I mean, I would say the the main focus that I've had that's been consistent, right, since since 2017, when I started thinking about, you know, the company to launch to now, and obviously there's, it's been four years, there's been a lot of growth and development and, uh, re you know, just expansion and all of that, um, learning with our customers and so on and so forth. But the one continuum throughout from then till now is I'm most concerned about accessibility for people. Because, you know, remember, I own the studio for, for a significant amount of years. Guess who's coming in the door? Privileged white people, right? And mm -hmm. not many people in the world can afford or has access to expert teachers or resources on their own dime, right? It's just true, right? And for the people um, that that can afford it, many of them don't feel comfortable walking into studios, especially, you know, we're not in a major city here in Northeast Pennsylvania. We're, you know, in between cities. We're two hours from New York City. We're two hours from Philadelphia. Um, so our population, our demographic is different. So, uh, you know, a, a single mom or a Hispanic man or a black woman might not feel comfortable going to the local yoga studio where the majority of the people there are going to be white upper-class women, right? They just aren't going to feel comfortable yet. They they're interested and curious about the practices, but how do we provide accessibility to everybody? 
so that there's no barriers to accessing resources that can be very helpful. And now we have 20 years of science proving that mindful, and I'm just going to use mindfulness as an example, you know, there's over 10, I think there's over 12,000 studies now on the efficacy of mindfulness practices for, yeah, for our health and well-being, not just our mental health, right? Our physical health, our relational health, um, the health of, of a society even. Um, so it ripples out and, um, and we need to make sure that people have access. So that's always been um, the mission, you know, how do we bring these practices how do we bring these resources and people, these experts forward in a way that uh, people can learn how to take better care of themselves and each other? Absolutely. I think, you know, really just so much, you know, powerful content and things to consider, you know, especially, especially from, you know, an HR standpoint where, um, you know, sometimes, not necessarily always, but sometimes the cause of some of this challenge for people is the workplace, right? And, you yeah. know, that, that, or it can certainly at least be a, a catalyst. So yeah, we were talking before I hit record about a, a term that I, uh, is, is new for me. And so I'd like to explore this a little bit and that the, the term that you used was uh, regenerative workplace. So it, as you think about that, you know, kind of the, the context of what you just shared and, and uh, regenerative workplaces. What what does that mean? What does that look like, you know, in your mind? And 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 how can we facilitate that as HR professionals? Yeah, um, that's such a good question. And I, you know, I've seen uh, definitions kind of floating in and out. There's you know white papers that are naming um, this aspiration. Uh, I think the Surgeon General just released. Um, a, a, supportive material for, uh, well-being in workplaces and flourishing in workplaces, human flourishing. Um, so, you know, without the structure of, um, a culture and leadership's commitment to that culture, uh, to transform, uh, pretty progressive, progressively transform into a culture where everyone is cared for and resourced appropriately to thrive. Um, that's kind that's, it, it, what does that mean to, you know, what is the question is, we could turn that all around and say, the question is how, right? Mm. What does it mean to me? Um, and I think that the, the, the the answer or the definition to regenerative workplace is very specific to each organization that is thinking in those terms. Because of course, every organization um, it, it is thinking about it differently based on their organizational readiness for something like this, right? So if the yep. organization has never thought ever about well-being or wellness even, right, as an imperative to their company culture as a benefit that is absolutely needed um, just as a baseline, then are they going to be considering what a regenerative workplace means for them? The, you know, the answer is no. Um, it, it, so I, I think it depends. Um, and, and I think 
it needs it's a question that needs to be asked uh to, to every leader involved in any organization in 2022 going into 2023 coming out of the the pandemic trying to figure out how to deploy resources across the organization that are going to be transformative um so i think there's more questions than answers or definitions in what that means um because it's so specific to uh, the culture that you're in. Absolutely. I, you know, I think it's, it's just a really, it's, it's really an interesting aspect of a human resources professional's job at this point, you know, this, and like you said, I just think about the, you know, my experience of, um, <laughs> you know, th- this was not on our radar 15 years ago. You know, this, this oh, really no. has been, thrust into the the spotlight, but I think it, but it's been there, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's continually been there and we've, we've dealt with these challenges, but typically they've taken the symptom of, you know, somebody who's acting out at work or, you know, conflict at work with coworkers or, or people who are taking leave of absences for, you know, undisclosed reasons. Um, but we just, we haven't had the vocabulary or the focus on it now. So I think, I think we're at a really important and, and, you know, potentially transformative uh, spot for, for, for companies to take some ownership of this and really support, support their employees and, um, you know, as well as themselves. You know, I think. Yeah, well, that's what, what I was going to say. I mean, every HR executive, and, and by the way, it's not fair that any of this is being pushed into the lap of HR executives. <laughs> to be honest, right? They, I mean, it's just outrageous. And what we're seeing, especially in the enterprise space, is that you know, executive boards, um, board, you know, the board of directors, the leadership of the company is is really also in agreement, right? So they're they're now um, pulling some of this. Some companies, not all, of course, but some. Uh, you know, some companies really high up on that organizational readiness realm. Um, you know, they've they they get it. They're deploying resources. They're looking at interventions. They're um, but what they're most importantly doing is they are hiring uh, chief well-being officers or chief mm-hmm. medical officers. Um, a ch- you know, chief DEI officers. Um, and, and they're assembling a team of people that bring clinical experience into mental health support specifically, right? Um, they're also looking at other domains of well-being, of course, but, you know, we're working with a company that, uh, you know, recently, you know, within the last two years hired a chief medical officer, you know, from a major research institution, um, so we're seeing these investments being made by executive teams to really say, no, well-being is an imperative and they need to have their own budget, right? And resources and teams so that we, we can shift the culture of our company dramatically into a culture of care. Um, and of course, you know, it, it takes time because, uh, you know, some of these resources came on board, board during the pandemic um, out of necessity, right? Out of pure, like, terror, basically. 
And now, yeah. you know, we've gotten, you know, arguably to the other side of, of this thing, um, you know, post pandemic, I don't know. My husband just had COVID two weeks ago. So. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know when we're post pandemic, but I'm going to go with close enough. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I hate, I hate even talking about it, but, um, but we've learned a lot. Um, we've built uh, a lot of tools, uh, have been, have been designed and built. Um, and I think a lot of processes, uh, have been built with, you know, internally within our, our clients, uh, company within companies so that they're, you know, trying to figure out how do I operationalize this, right? Because well-being, I mean, we're talking about well-being, right? So how do you operationalize well-being? These are the questions that are being asked. And, and these are the questions we're asking, um, ourselves is because, you know, quite frankly, these decision makers are leaning into, you know, people like me and our and my team um, and our partners uh, to kind of give them some advice here. And so, you know, their systems are being developed and assessments are being developed, and um, and the and these tools, I think, are we're going to see dramatic transformation in tools like ours over the next, you know, three to five years, over the next five to ten years. Um, mm -hmm. so we're learning so much and, and, the, and I think, you know, that it, those are the conversations that are happening, but what I'm always reminding myself is everything we're talking about right now is going to be different six months from now, a year from now, 24, because we are learning so much every day. We have more research uh, more peer-reviewed research, more data coming out every day. Um, there's people all over the world working on solutions uh, for flourishing in the workplace. And, and it's an exciting time to be doing this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, from my standpoint, I do appreciate the uh, you giving us HR people an out because, yeah, we are not you know, chief medical officers or, or, or psychologists. Some of us are, you know, industrial and organizational psych majors, which is the closest that we, but that doesn't mean that we understand, you know, medical right. needs for people, right? It just means we have, you know, an understanding of some of the psychological principles as it relates to the workplace. But I do okay. think, you know, leveraging that expertise, you know, being, being that sense of conscious, or, or your or conscience for your organization is so so important and even asking those tough questions like how are we helping our employees through this to your leadership team um you know i i think that you know that that's the role that that we play um as Absolutely. well as as you know yeah and, and when people and are struggling to too right we're here to help oh my god, <laughs> like, oh my god. struggling so much i mean I, I want to say one thing though. I don't want I don't want any HR e executive that might be listening to this to think that they're not capable or not you know qualified or yeah. None of that is true. I mean, it, HR is 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 dramatically important in the in the process, right? But what I'm saying is that we can bring in additional resources that. And and companies are, and I think it's great um, because HR has has had enough, right? They've had enough right. on their plate, especially over the last three years. 
Um, so they need support. And it doesn't eliminate that them from the process of rolling this out, of you know, understanding how it relates to the other, the other benefit, benefits that have been deployed, of uh, really understanding what people need. And I think that's where we see HR playing such a critical role. Like, there's been a lot of um, tools that have been, like, just uh, deployed because people don't know what the heck to do. So they're like, okay, I'm going to subscribe to this app or this service or, you know, uh, you know, bring in a yoga teacher, you know, for a yoga class on site or virtually, you know, once a week. Um, you know, I think there's a, I forget who said it, but there was a famous quote, um, recently and it was like, you can't yoga your way out of this, right? That's true. I mean, yoga is one of the things we bring forward as a tool, um, but it's certainly not all we do. Um, and so I think people get confused a little when they start looking at Studio B as a solution because they think, oh, well, it's just yoga and mindfulness. Well, n- not really, right? Those are just some of the tools that we lean into. Um, we believe that the foundation of um, of all well-being in any domain is a development of awareness, right? So how do we develop awareness so that we understand how we're feeling when we're feeling it or how we're reacting or responding when it's actually happening? How are we, you know, how is our individual ability to ground in present moment awareness so that our attention is fully in this space right now, right? And and I do wholeheartedly believe, and maybe obviously it could be from my 25 years of practicing yoga and mindfulness, but I wholeheartedly believe that without um, tools to develop awareness, to, to be present and in the moment wholeheartedly with compassion and curiosity and kindness to ourselves and others that, you know, it's not, we're not sustainable without it. So yeah, we lean a lot into the development of awareness, awareness through mindfulness practices, through compassion practices, meta kindness, gratitude, generosity, all of these qualities, these natural human capacities that we all have right? So how do we harness these capacities and develop tools so that we could not only feel better, but then apply those tools to relational challenges that come up every single day, right? Whether it's with the people we work with or our kids or our family or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I feel like I'm rambling. No, it's, 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 (laughs) And I'm just, I'm just listening and soaking it all in Jennifer. So, you know, I haven't asked many questions, but I haven't, I just feel like it's such an important topic and I want to make sure you have an opportunity to, to, you know, give us as much content as possible. I do think, you know, so, you know, this is something on a personal level that I've, I've certainly been on a personal journey of mindfulness and meditation and, you know, I'm trying to relax, (laughs) But, but still, you know, still struggle to stay present and 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 focused with with everything that's going on. I, I, I maybe I have one more question that I think is maybe important to to align our listeners around, and that's that's the 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 topic of meta. And and I think it's one of those things that you know in the Western 
society might be a little, maybe sound a little woo-woo, but I, I think it's such a powerful, powerful topic. So can you just kind of walk our listeners through it? You know, what do you mean by meta? What is, what is this, what is this approach to the world and, and, and how can we reflect that, um, you know, in our day-to-day lives? Yeah. Yes, you're right. And I should have defined that when I said it. So I'm glad you asked the question. Um, Meta really translates as um, loving kindness, loving kindness. And and really what it translates to are the capacities of the heart, right? So if we think about um, loving kindness as a natural human capacity first and foremost, uh, it, it, philosophically, that means that, you know, we are uh, we come into this body, into this life um, with this pure heart, with this open, pure heart. Um, and we could trust it. We could trust the capacity of the heart to be boundless, right? And and we could keep adding to that capacity and we could keep kind of flexing it through practices um, that remind us of how powerful that heart connection is, right? So that's really what the meta practices do. Um, they're a reminder that uh, we we um, have this, we could trust this capacity to love and be kind um, to ourselves and each other. And of course, all these other beautiful human qualities are related to meta. And I mentioned some of them you know, specifically compassion and empathy. Um, we talk a lot about compassion practices and self-compassion practices and the development of empathy and how important that is um, when we're in a leadership role, that we could um, lead people with empathy. Um, so meta practices are essentially, um, and there's a lot of ways to do them. Um, there's very traditional practices uh, that you can go through traditional, um, essentially, you know, traditional sayings or, or um, kind of similar to mantra, but a little different, um, where you go through a metta practice and you're led to uh, be, compa- you know, extend loving kindness, like energetically and kind of imagining leaning into, um, this kind of unknown space, right. Of imagining, um, someone that's really easy to extend love to that could be your pet or a child in your life or a grandparent as an example. Um, and if you could kind of imagine this person or being, and extend loving kindness with some simple phrases like, may you be well, you know, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you be filled with loving kindness. So those are just some simple um, phrases that we could use and we could kind of imagine this being, being, you know, enveloped in in this beautiful um, wish or aspiration for them. And, and when you go through the practice of loving kindness, you actually feel warmth in your heart um, and you feel more connected to the person that you're imagining. And, and you kind of go through this exercise where, you know, you then imagine extending loving kindness um, to someone, you know, neutral, 
that you might not know well, but you see often that you don't have any strong feelings for. Maybe, you know, I always think of this guy that works at the UPS office that I drop packages off at (laughs) because he's just got this big personality and he always makes me smile. And I think about, you know, sending him meta and, and how, you know, he's just always kind, right? So somebody like that, that you don't really have any charged, you know, relationships with. And then you go down like this road of, okay, can I send meta now to somebody that's difficult to love, right? Maybe that person at work that you are challenged with currently, or, you know, a family member or spouse or friend. Um, And we build this capacity over time to be with discomfort in a way that really transforms um, our, our relationship with discomfort, right? Because that's it's a, and that and that's I'm getting into a lot now. Um, you can tell I, I'm I'm a teacher, but <laughs> but the the meta practices, um, <laughs> I'm just, uh, have, yes, it's it, great. They have a physical experience um, it, when they're done it, it, the right way um, in a quiet space with the support of a teacher. And it, it does build this inner trust that I could sit with something or I could turn towards something that's really uncomfortable and I could just land in my body in a different way um, and not shut down, not become reactive immediately, um, not turn away from the discomfort that I'm experiencing, but rather stay open um, so, you know, these practices are, are very powerful and very transformative and you have to kind of get introduced to them, you know, in the right way, slowly with the guidance of a teacher, because as you said, the practices are simple, but simple doesn't mean easy, right? right. Even the, you know, mindfulness practices, meta practices, breathing practices, um, embodied movement practices, the bot, I mean, we could get into trauma. We should, we'd have to have a whole other conversation about trauma <laughs> and working with, yeah. but you know, these, these practices are really potent, very powerful, very transformative, and people need the support of a teacher. Um, or, or sometimes it's just too hard. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's, there's so much there. I think, you know, if I could maybe leave our audience with something to consider is, you know, if you're not thinking about these sorts of things as it relates to the workforce, there's a huge opportunity here to really step up and help people and maybe ask those questions of of both your organization and of yourself. Because if you're not coming uh, to work, you know, with, with full mindfulness and presence and, and, you know, and an open heart and mind, um, you know, you, you, you may not be, you know, doing your employees, the, uh, the, the service that they need you to do in your role as a human resources professional. So with that being said, uh, we're going to shift gears. We're going to go through the rebel HR flash around really quick here. Cause we're, we're quickly running out of time. So, uh, question number one, where does HR need to rebel? Toxic work culture. Absolutely. We need to be in a culture where it's okay to take a break, where it's okay to rest, where it's okay to be honest, where it's okay to check out and set clean, clear and healthy boundaries. Absolutely. And 
you know, every time I get ready to send an email on a Saturday, I have to remind myself. Of that. so, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good call out. Thank you for that. All right. Question number two, who should we be listening to? Mm, artists. Let's, let's listen more to the artists, to the creatives, um, to the songwriters, to the poets. Um, stay inspired in, in your life and, and that will translate to inspiration in your work. I love it. Okay. All right. Last question here. Uh, how can our listeners connect with you, learn more about some of your work and, and some of the important topics we discussed today? Oh, absolutely. Well, you could always email me, um, and I'm sure you'll share that information, but it's jennifer at meetyourcenter.com. Um, you could go to our website. It's studiobemindfulness.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not super active. Unfortunately, I'm not a super um, active social media person, but I am on there. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't know what my handle is. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, hope that you'll share that as well. And, um, I'm also on Instagram, uh, and I, I do share there more with some good tips. Uh, studio be mindfulness. Mindfulness is on Instagram and my handle on Instagram is Jenny in Zen. So, uh, I'd love to get some follows and I would, you know, Definitely welcome any opportunity to connect. Absolutely. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, uh, just an absolutely wonderful, uh, wonderful discussion. Um, really important and critical topic. And I have just, I've gained so much um, value from, from this conversation that I'm sure our listeners have as well. Thank you for the time, Jennifer. Awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Have a good afternoon. You too. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. All right, that does it for the Rebel HR Podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we represent. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.